Let's pray. Heavenly Father, remind us of our baptism. In Jesus' name, amen. I hit the age of accountability, which in the Baptist church is around 12 or 13. And by the way, in the Baptist church, that means that you are now able to make your decision for Jesus and get baptized. It'd be a lot more exciting, except also turning 13 meant that I was now responsible for all of my sins. Up until that point, at least according to their theology, I had received a free pass. Before I got baptized, though, my family left the Baptist church, and my mom and dad were no longer churched. My grandma took my sister and I to the Lutheran church. She was Danish, and uh, so we became Lutherans, or at least Lutherans in waiting. Uh, because we had to get enrolled into confirmation class. So we were in confirmation class. Confirmation was coming up. Pastor Sam uh, held, handed out this uh, little uh, sheet that we were supposed to fill out, and on it was this thing that says, when was your baptism date? And we told Pastor Sam, we've never been baptized. This threw him for a loop because, you see, Lutherans get baptized when they're babies, and so to have this now 13-year-old who hasn't been baptized just a week or so before confirmation well, yeah, you can see how that didn't go over so well. So the next week, just days before Confirmation Sunday, my sister and I got baptized. The, the entire Confirmation class was our godparents. Um, there was cake and, you know, those little poppers that shoot confetti. And just like that, I was okay with Lutherans. And it wasn't just the cake, um, but it was a large part because the only part of me that got wet at my baptism was my forehead and my hair. You see, if I'd gotten Baptist baptized, I would have had to have worn a white robe, which as a self-conscious teenager means you really have to be concerned about what you wear underneath because the robe gets wet and then it becomes basically see-through. And uh, I would have gotten totally dunked. Not a single hair of me was left outside the water, except perhaps the right arm if I was Irish because they leave that out so that it can wreak holy vengeance on God's behalf. Worst of all, though, in Baptist baptisms, you then have to sit the whole rest of the service by yourself in a special pew with rubber and plastic everywhere because, of course, you're soaking wet. It wasn't until I got to Lutheran High School that I learned what baptism was really all about. You see, I was really shocked when the Lutherans told me, well, no, confirmation is where you confirm your baptism vows because as a baby, you weren't able to make those vows. Your parents and your sponsors and your friends and family made them for you, but now you get to stand up and say, I understand this, and now I'm confirming my faith. I, I, I'm confirming that I am going to be responsible for my faith. That's when I started to wrap my head around the simplicity and yet the totality of what happened in that simple event. If you haven't spent much time thinking about your baptism, you got to know that it's a controversial subject within the Christian church. It's one of those things that we love to fight with one another about. How much water do you use? What age do you get baptized? How many times do you get baptized? Is it forwards or backwards? What are the requirements? Who should baptize you? You could spend the rest of the year reading all the different theological opinions. I'm going to give you a quick summary of Lutheran beliefs. We baptize only once. Baptism is God's work, and he knows what he's doing, so once is enough. The amount of water doesn't matter, whether it's a drop or an ocean, and, and you can see above just because, again, it's God's work, not the water. 
We baptize babies because baptism is a means of grace. And Jesus did say, let the little children come unto me. And in Acts 16.33, 1 Corinthians 1.16, it says entire households were baptized. Normally a pastor does the baptism, but that's for the sake of order. On page 1023 of our purple maroon hymnal, there is a service of emergency baptism for when a pastor is not available. And you need to know that that baptism, regardless of who did it and where it took place, is just as valid as if it had taken place in a church and been done by a pastor. Putting it simply, a baby knows as much, if not more, about God's love than I do. And if you're going to get all wonky over a baby needing to have their sins forgiven, it, it may help to know that sin isn't just the stuff we do. It's a part of us that, by our very nature, rebels against God and His Word. And by the way, anybody who's been around a two-year-old and all of those, no, no, they, I think, can understand that even babies have this natural thing about wanting to say no about everything. Now, Peter and Paul remind us baptism is nothing more and nothing less than us dying to anything and everything that would keep us away from God and out of heaven. And then... After we die to all those things, God resurrects us. Now, this is why it used to be called a Christian name. People would say, what's your Christian name? And the reason is that was the name that was pronounced at your baptism because you had died and now you've come back as a new person. That's what our epistle lesson was all about. You were forgiven and you are loved. And everything that you would have been and everything even that you were is now gone. And so even if Satan showed up and says, I know what you did last summer. In fact, I know what you did last week. I know what you're thinking and I know what you're going to do next week. We get to say, mm, sorry, that was a different me and that one is dead and now I'm alive in Christ. If you wonder why they paired the creation story with Jesus' baptism, it's, it's about chaos being tamed and about order being created. Baptism takes all that was wild and unruly about us and forgives it, allowing us to find a path through this life to where it is that we need to be. Every pain, every sickness, every tragedy, every sin, every failure becomes nothing more than raw substance for us to use to create a life worth living. And because the waters of baptism convey forgiveness, your stories, your scars become lighthouses to navigate from rather than rocks to get shipwrecked on. Here's where the story of creation in Genesis collides with baptism. The God of creation cannot be tamed. In Genesis, the first thing God does is he creates all the stuff that he's going to create the universe out of. And then he organizes it. Think about that for a second. I had to build four Ikea-type tables last week. They only had like 30 or 40 parts each, and I still made a mistake on one of them. Now, God had an unlimited number of things, and, and he didn't make a single mistake. Oh, and I should mention, along with creating the matter and then, you know, forming it into the universe, he had to establish all the scientific laws like gravity and make sure the earth wasn't too close or too far away. And then my personal favorite, he had to create all the, the billions of colors because, you know, he could have just created everything in shades of gray. Now, even though this display of power should really excite us, um, humanity's usual response is to try to tone God down. Instead of God being all-knowing, all-powerful, and being everywhere at once, we try to make him more like the Avengers or Superman who all have their kryptonite or their limitations and flaws. I mean, we learned that even Hulk is afraid of somebody. Somehow a God who is infinite is too much for us to handle. <sighs> we want God to be either or not both and. 
And a lot of that begins with pastors and our inability to communicate both law and gospel, grace and sin, in a way that you can embrace it and understand it. See, a lot of people want a God who's like a broken vending machine that just spits free stuff out. And, and then when somebody comes along and fixes the vending machine, they start complaining how unfair it is when the truth is it was unfair before it got fixed. I need to go back to Genesis and God creating all the stuff from which he created the universe and you and me and Reese's peanut butter cups. Uh, think about what kind of power that took and the mind it took to organize it all. I mean, if God got gravity wrong, everything would either be squished or go flying off into space. And if the water was too salty or the sun too hot, everything would die. And God got it all right on the first try. I mean, when the Bible says all things are possible with God, it creates unlimited possibilities. But we're willing to settle most of the time for God turning all the lights green so that we're not late to work or making it sunny weather because we've got a picnic planned for Saturday. We soften the creative force of God. We dilute His power in order to make us feel better about ourselves. <sighs> we make God only a little bit better than us instead of infinitely better than us. God becomes a tame pet that is there to comfort us, go for walks with us, fetch things, get belly rubs, and play ball occasionally. This is all very cool, but it also means God will never put on His cape and tights and do what He did at creation except that he did, and he does, and he's going to keep doing the creating thing. See, God cannot, nor will God, ever allow us to tame him. If you were listening to the gospel lesson, especially the part where it says, God tore the heavens apart, and the Spirit descended like a dove, for just a moment, God folded the fabric of the universe back. I mean, he tore it, and he folded the fabric of the universe back like you and I fold a blanket back on our bed. So that the same Spirit of God that moved over the waters and the voids of creation, or brooded over it, as the King James says, settled out of time and space on Jesus and remained there. And what God was saying was that things were about to change and nothing was going to stand in His way as He went about the work of saving His people, that we could not keep God out of our world or out of our life. Most of us don't use the word redemption except when it comes to cans and bottles which we paid an extra nickel for and get roughly four cents back on. We do pray about or stream consciousness about all the things in our life and in our world that are broken. Tyne and Genesis, these are the dark voids, the empty spaces, the swirling masses of confused matter in our lives. And by the way, it could be our mental health. It could be grief that we're suffering because we lost someone that means so much to us. Our job may be a mess. Maybe it's our finances. It could be growing older. Then there's figuring out what we're going to do once we grow up. Or maybe it's Israel and Gaza or Russia and Ukraine or any of the earthquakes, volcanoes, or hurricanes that have happened in the last few months. It could also just be a general dissatisfaction of the way things are and the fear of where they're going. The Spirit wasn't just brooding over the voids and chaos of matter and energy swirling waiting to create things. No, that same Spirit of God comes into the swirling messes and chaos and voids of our life and is ready and willing to help us take all that is and organize it into a life, our life, that's worth living. And a life, by the way, that can also effect change in others. 
Last week, Nancy and I were in the living room. We were just sitting there when the power went out. It, it got dark, and I mean really dark. We waited for a few seconds and then a few more, and it took almost 30 seconds for the power to come back on. Now, during that darkness, the couch, the table, the dog, and Nancy continued to exist, even though I couldn't see them. Just because I couldn't see them doesn't mean that they suddenly vanished, and then when the light returned, they suddenly you know, reappeared. No, the light doesn't create things. It simply gives us the chance to see what's already there. I went and got the flashlight we keep by the back door just in case the power went out again. I made a mental map of where everything was, Nancy, the chairs, the table, and especially Gracie Wooferdoodle. Uh, several hours later when I went to bed, though, my alarm clock was blinking. Now, I'd already reset to the stove and the microwave, but my alarm clock was supposed to have a battery in it that, so that the clock remembered what time it was if the power went off. But I hadn't changed out the battery, so I did reset the time and made a mental note that I needed to do that so that I don't have to worry about waking up late because the power went off in the middle of the night. This is a very simple explanation for the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, when we say the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it and cannot overcome it, we're not saying that you will never experience times of darkness in your life. That would be a flat-out lie. I don't care how holy you are. I don't care how much money you've given to the church. I don't care how many times you go to church. I don't care how many prayers you've prayed. You're still going to experience darkness. It's just something that we cannot escape as long as we're in this world. We're also not saying, by the way, that whenever the light is shining, that everything's going to be hunky-dory and you're going to have everything you want. Jesus once told his disciples, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. He was warning us that there will be times in our life when things are so dark that we're not going to be able to see anything. And so now is the time to make sure that we've got a flashlight and we organize everything so that when the darkness comes, we're ready. And by the way, he also says whenever it's light, that's the time, by the way, to go and get stuff done. Now, metaphorically, most of our life has lived in the twilight. It, it's that time right before the dawn. The old saying, it's always darkest just before the dawn, let's face it, it's not true. But that doesn't mean that there won't be moments of darkness that obscure the rising sun, storms and other things that hide the light that's slowly rising over the horizon. And the advantage of Jesus' followers is to have the spirit that broods not only just over the creation, but also us creating and organizing and bringing light and life to us, regardless of how much darkness is in the world. See, God's breath, God's spirit is given not just to call on when the hungering dark envelops us and we can't see anything, but also to prepare us for those moments well ahead of time. If you read the Bible, you know what? The Jewish dietary laws are pretty good if you want to remain healthy. Uh, biblical teachings on money, great way to avoid problems involving finances. Broken relationships, there's a lot in the Bible to help you deal with those. Forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace. And by the way, the Holy Spirit just doesn't run a highlighter across it so that you go, oh, look at that. But rather, the Spirit desires to work in and through us to create a willingness on our part and a desire on our part to organize and change things in our life to make our life better and then enable us to help others as well. See, baptism isn't just a, hey, I've been baptized. How about you moment? How, how, how was your cake? Did they have those little poppers? How nice is your certificate? Who are your godparents? That's not what it's all about. You see, the same God that brooded over the waters and created the universe 
breathed his Holy Spirit into you at your baptism. The same God that organized all the chaotic matter into a very organized and perfect world is ready to work in you to bring about a life that is easier to live because you never have to look over your shoulder. That whole tearing time and space wasn't just to impress you or scare you. It was to remind you in baptism that God infuses himself and his glory and his righteousness and his love and his grace right into your soul. I know it looks like just a few words and a, and a little bit of water, but it's actually so much more than that. All of us desperately need an identity, an identity, by the way, that cannot be taken away and in which we can find our true self. When Jesus was walking around in the wilderness, that's the last part of our gospel lesson, and the devil came to tempt him, he said, you know, if you are the son of God, do this and this and this. That was like when we were seven and somebody came up and said, I dare you, I double dare you, I double dog dare you. But Jesus didn't bite. He knew who he was, and he didn't have to prove it to Satan. There was no doubt. He just refused to play Satan's game and went about doing God's work. That's, to be honest, the big point that we're supposed to get out of our text today. We aren't Jesus, so we're going to suffer some identity crises. Are we really unique and unreproducible miracles of God? Are we really loved and forgiven? Are we really eternal? And God's answer, by the way, is always yes. And that's a capital Y, capital E, capital S, and then lots of exclamation points. At Jesus' baptism, the whole rending and tearing of time and space was so that we could hear God say, You, Jesus, are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Jesus already knew it. God said it so that we could hear it. At your baptism, no matter when or where it took place or how much water was used or who baptized you, there may not have been a rending of time and space, but God was there. And in the water and in those words, here's what God said. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And in you, I was and I am and I always shall be well pleased. Go, he says. Go out. Know who you are. You are mine. You always will be. Now go and take all that you are and make a difference in the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.